Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 20 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 579. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying this portion of the book of Psalms, and we've come to a psalm this morning that I would guess most of us are not very familiar with, Psalm 20. It's a relevant psalm, as all of God's Word is relevant. And I pray it will encourage us this morning as we study it together. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today. A song for the day of trouble. Psalm 20. And this is what the Word of God says. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. And may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. In Job chapter 5 and verse 7, Eliphaz, the first of Job's comforters, declared, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And most of us this morning, I imagine, can relate to this statement. For often our lives seem to travel from one troubling experience to the next. David was conversant with troubling days. And in the midst of one of those seasons, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he penned the words of Psalm 20. Now, Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 form a pair. Psalm 20 is a prayer for blessing on King David as he leads God's people. And Psalm 21 praises and thanks God for answering the king's prayer. Psalm 20 is referred to as a royal psalm. A psalm in which the king is the center. And the theme of this psalm is prayer before going to war. For it was customary in Israel and Judah to pray to the Lord and seek an answer from Him before going into battle. Therefore, in this psalm, we see the people praying for their king. And we see the king seeking help from God. But this psalm is not only a royal psalm. It is a liturgical psalm, for you'll notice as we read through the psalm, there is a change in speaker midway through the psalm, and at the end of the psalm, the speaker changes once more. And as the superscription reminds us, this psalm is a psalm of David to the choir master. It is a song that is designed to be sung by the Jewish people on behalf of their king and on behalf of their nation. It is truly a song for the day of trouble. 
And so David teaches us in this psalm how to sing and how to pray and how to trust God in days of trouble. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, the prayers for the king. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding this psalm, but the language of the text portrays the king of Israel bowing before God at the tabernacle prior to going out to battle while the people are surrounding him from a distance and praying for their king. This picture that the psalm portrays for us stresses the importance of the king to the people. For the king was God's anointed leader, and he was, as Lamentations 4 says, the life and the breath of the nation. And as 2 Samuel 21 says, he was the lamp of the people. And so this picture that the psalm gives us is one of significance. The king praying and seeking help from God, and the people interceding and praying on behalf of their king. And in verses 1 through 5, we see their prayers for the king. They make five petitions. And you'll notice in the first five verses that the word you or your is used ten times as the people pray emphatically, repeatedly for their king, King David. So notice with me these prayers. In verse number one, we see a prayer for protection. And David says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now to be a king was to face trouble. Every kingdom had enemies and sooner or later those enemies would come and wage war. And David described these days of war as days of trouble. And the word trouble describes a narrowness, being caught in a straight, tight place. It describes a situation when one's adversaries are surrounding you from every side. And there is great pressure coming upon your life. And because there was potential trouble all around David and his people, the people prayed to Yahweh that he would answer the prayers of their king on the day of trouble when it manifested itself. Itself. Furthermore, you'll notice at the end of verse 1, the people prayed that the name of the God of Jacob would protect their king. Now, whenever you see the phrase, the name of God, in Scripture, it always represents to us all that God is known to be in His nature, in His reputation, and in His mighty works and acts. And by basing their prayer on the name of God... The people were saying that they were trusting in the character of God and that this gave them great confidence to pray on behalf of their king that Yahweh would protect him and that Yahweh would answer their prayers. And speaking of Yahweh as the God of Jacob meant that he was the covenant God who makes promises to his people, but he doesn't only make promises to them, he keeps the promises that he makes to them. And in Genesis chapter 28, we see an encounter of the God of Jacob with Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 28, the Bible teaches that Jacob took a rock and he laid it down and he rested his head on that rock and he went to sleep. 
and he began to dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending on it. And in that dream, God came and appeared above the ladder, and God spoke these words to him in Genesis 28, verses 13 to 15. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And this meaning is what was caught up in the people's prayers on behalf of their king. That the God of Jacob promises to never leave his people. That the God of Jacob promises to go with them wherever he leads them and wherever they go. And that the God of Jacob will keep and fulfill all of his promises to his people. And so in this name, based on this character, they pray on behalf of their king, Yahweh, protect him. You are the God who makes and keeps promises. John Phillips in his commentary described it this way. The God of Jacob is a God of compassion and care. There was nothing deserving about Jacob. He was a scheming, crooked arm twister, a crafty cattleman, not a bit above lying and cheating if it served him. Yet God met Jacob, mastered Jacob, molded Jacob, magnified Jacob, and multiplied Jacob. And the God of Jacob is the God who loves us in spite of our faults and failings. And to call on the name of the God of Jacob implies a practical trust in God. It is saying, here we are, Lord. We need you desperately. We are weak and wayward by nature, but we are looking to you to meet us where we are. End quote. And that's the prayer. God, we need you. God, we're desperate for you. We are surrounded by days of trouble. And God, if you don't come through for us, we will be defeated. We will be conquered. We need your help. You are the God who has made promises to us. And you are the God who will keep and fulfill those promises. And in the context of Psalm 20 and verse 1, the particular reference to the God of Jacob refers to the words that Jacob spoke to his family when he was faced with his own day of trouble. And in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 3, this is what Jacob said to his family. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress or in the day of my trouble because he has been with me wherever I have gone. Do you hear that, friends? He has been with me wherever I have gone. It is so true that you can look back on your life, in the rearview mirror of your life, and you can see God's faithfulness, God's purpose, God's goodness displayed in your life, that he's been with you wherever you have gone. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And the people pray in the name of this God of care and comfort 
this promise-keeping God, may he protect you. Now that language should sound familiar if you've been following along in this study on the Psalms. It literally means to set someone up on high. It's used in Psalm 18 verse 2 where David describes God as his fortress, his high place, his place of refuge and strength. And the idea is that the people are praying that God, this God of Jacob who is with us wherever we go, that this God of Jacob would take the king He would take David, and in the midst of the day of trouble, in the midst of battle, God would set their king up on a high place in a fortress where he would be protected and he would be out of reach of his enemies. This is a powerful prayer to pray, friends, that the God of Jacob would protect us. And just as King David knew what it meant to face days of trouble, you and I know what it means to face days of trouble. David's days of trouble may have been battles for his nation, but our battles are for our souls, for the souls of our children, for our marriages, for our families, for our homes, for our church family, and for the broader church across the globe. We have an adversary, friends, that the Bible describes through Peter that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And because we have an adversary like this, we need God's protection more than ever. We are faced with seemingly endless days of trouble. And there's only one refuge for our souls. There's only one fortress on high. And it is the refuge and the fortress of the name of the God of Jacob. The God who makes promises to his people and the God who keeps those promises to his people. Only this God knows the dangers that lie in the path before us. And only this God has the wisdom and the strength and the power to lead us through all of life's battles and place us in the high place of his protection and shelter us under his mighty right hand in his wing of protection. And so I ask you this morning, friends, if you are not praying for the God of Jacob to protect you, how will you withstand the battle? You think you're strong enough to endure it and do it on your own? It's a fool's errand. Parents, if you are not praying for the God of Jacob to protect the souls of your children, when you put them on the school bus and send them to school, who will protect them? He is the only saving refuge. He is the only fortress for the days of trouble. Oh, I submit to you this morning that this prayer for protection is not just for the king. It's for every single one of us. Secondly, in verse number two, he prays a prayer for provision. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Now notice what happens in verse 2. The people acknowledge God's symbolic presence in the Ark of the Covenant that David recaptured and placed in the sanctuary or the tabernacle and set it in Zion or Jerusalem. 
And additionally, notice in verse 2 that the people prayed for God's power to uphold and support and sustain the king by granting him powers of wisdom for leadership and character and reasoning and decision-making as the battle progressed. And notice how the people frame it in verse 2. They are praying and crying out for the God of Jacob to help and to support their king. The word help has the meaning of doing something for someone that they could not do for themselves. And in this context, it is used to explain victory in military conflicts when God gives the victory on the battlefield. 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12 is an example of it. The Bible says then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer for he said, Till now... The Lord has helped us. He's helped us. And so when we sing that line in the old hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer, it is a stone of remembrance that we're singing about where it reminds us of how God has helped us in the past. And the people are praying that this rock, This fortress, this refuge, this God of Jacob would come and help their king. Psalm 46.1 describes it this way. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. It means in the days of distress, in the days of trouble, in the days of difficulty that all of us experience, this God, this God of Jacob is very near to us, even when it feels like he isn't. And so the people knew that victory in the day of trouble would only be secured through the help and support of Yahweh. Alan Ross helps us really understand the significance of this prayer in verse 2 by saying it was not that God would simply lend support to David's efforts. It was that without divine intervention, David would fail completely. That's the prayer. God, if you don't intervene on my behalf... I'm going to fail, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to fall, I'm going to be defeated. Now friends, don't dismiss this prayer so quickly. It is a helpful prayer, it is a practical prayer, not only for the king, but for all of our lives. I'm trying to show you this in the psalm today. Don't just keep it in the context of King David. Put it in the context of your life and mine. And Psalm 73 helps us understand the importance of this prayer In Psalm 73, we get a picture of how entering the sanctuary of God changes our perspective on life and how it provides the help and the support that we need. Now, Asaph is the author of Psalm 73. And as you begin to read Psalm 73, you find that Asaph is deeply troubled. He looks all around him, and it seems in his vantage point that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. That the wicked seem to rule and get away with everything while the righteous are constantly defeated and in trouble. And he goes at length to describe what he sees from verse 4 to verse 15. He laments and complains to God about the condition of his culture and the times that he's living in. It's very relevant. But then, beginning in verse 16, a shift takes place in the psalm. And listen to Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, how to understand everything that he's seen around him, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now listen to verse 17. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Do you catch what he's saying, friends? He was defeated. He was discouraged by everything that he was seeing around him. It was as if the world was turned upside down. Sound familiar? And he couldn't make sense of it, and he was weary and discouraged in all of it until he went into the house of God. And then, through his worship of God, God changed his perspective, and God showed him the end of the wicked and how the righteous would prosper. And he began to see life, listen, as it really is from God's perspective. And friends, I'm telling you this morning, that's why coming to the house of God on a weekly basis should be the number one priority in your life and in your family. Because when you come into this place and you sit under the preaching and the hearing of the word of God, God brings you back to reality. And God shows you what life is really like and where life is really headed and what life is all about. And it changes your perspective. And there's not a one of us that don't be, need to be reminded about this on a daily, weekly basis. And that's what happened to Asaph. He began to see life from God's perspective. He began to see it in all of its reality. And listen to how he ends the psalm in Psalm 73, verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you know what he was saying? God, when I came into your house and I began to worship you, you changed my perspective. You showed me reality. You showed me life. And I was reminded that you're at my right hand, that your right hand is a hand of power, and that you lead me and guide me and counsel me. In essence, verse 2 of Psalm 20, I was reminded, God, that you're my help and you're my support. Why do I need to be discouraged? And why do I need to be fearful? And why do I need to go around in a bad attitude? You are reality, God. And you keep me in reality. Well, friends, you know, the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. Listen to help, to support in time of need. And I'm submitting to you this morning what the people of God in David's day understood that when we dwell in God's presence, we gain God's view of life, we see the world as it truly is, and we see our troubles, we see our days of trouble in light of his holiness, his mercy, and his grace. And as the writer of Hebrews, and as this psalm reminds us, we find help. We find support. We find God's help, God's provision for our times of trouble. And this is why the worship of God is so important. And this is why you're deceiving yourself if you think it is an option in the life of a Christian. It should be your number one priority if you're a Christian. You are preparing 
for eternity. And your sports and all of your extracurricular activities that you elevate above the worship of God, listen to your pastor's heart this morning. You're going to regret it one day. You're going to wish that your priorities were different. And so turn to God for your help and your support. Turn to Him for your provision. Make it a priority in your life for God to continually change your perspective and keep you in reality. And remember, friends, remember what Christ has won for you. He's given you complete access to the throne of heaven where you can find grace and mercy and help and support for every single one of your troubles. Why would you not want that kind of provision? Why would you continue to try to do it on your own? It's a fool's errand. Well, number three, in verse three, it's a prayer for power. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. Oh, don't, don't miss verse 3, friends. If the king's leadership in battle was to be strong, his spiritual life needed to be strong. And so the people prayed for the spiritual well-being of their king and of their leader. And you'll notice in verse 3 that the first part of the petition is that Yahweh would remember all of David's offerings and faithful worship in the past. And the word offering that is used there refers to the gift or the tribute offering, which was usually a meal or a fruit offering. And this offering spoke of commitment. It was intended to bring to memory the one for whom the offering was made. And so as the incense rose as a sweet-smelling aroma to God, the idea was that God would remember the one who had offered this offering and their commitment to God. And what this verse is teaching us is that David came to his present crisis with a long, faithful history of devotion and love and worship to God. Did you hear that? Oh, let me just make sure you caught it because... I plan to say a couple of things about this because it's important. David didn't wait till he got in the crisis to worship. David had been worshiping all along. And so before he went into the day of trouble, he just did once again what he did on a daily basis. He walked with God and declared his dependence upon God. One commentator said it this way, what we do day by day in times of peace prepares us for times of war. When our devotional life is a habit, we are well served for the battle. And I'm telling you, I've been pastoring for a long time. I've been walking with God for a long time. And I've seen it over and over again that people do not treat God as a priority in their life until a crisis takes place. Then a crisis takes place and you haven't seen them in church for months. Now they're there every time the doors open. And they're crying and they're in tears and they're begging and they're pleading for God to help them. And I just don't understand, Pastor, why God would allow this to happen to me and why he would do this to me. And I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. They go and they break the glass that says break in case of an emergency to get the fire extinguisher out. And they're holding on to that thing for dear life. And then as soon as the trouble goes away, 
they go away. Because they treat God as a fire extinguisher. Instead of a God that they are to walk with and depend upon on a daily basis. And I'm telling you, friends, the reason why some of us struggle in the days of trouble is because we don't walk with God in the days of peace. We wait till the trouble comes. And David didn't do that. He did before the battle what he did every single day. Worship God. And you'll notice in the second part of the petition that they prayed that the Lord would find David's burnt sacrifices acceptable. These burnt sacrifices not only represented David's commitment, they represented David's total submission to God. And that only through this sacrifice would God find him acceptable. And so they prayed that God would be pleased with their king and that they would find his worship and his spiritual life acceptable and that God in turn, look at the text, would pour his favor and his blessing out upon their king. And that phrase, regard with favor, listen to how it should literally be translated. May your burnt sacrifice find fat. That's how it should be translated. May your burnt sacrifice find fat. Why would it be translated that way? Because the fat was the best part of the offering. And it meant that God would be pleased because the king offered the best to God. And so God, since the king is offering his best to you in worship, would you pour your favor and your divine blessing out upon our king? Would you accept him, God? Friends, can't you see the picture in verse 3? These offerings and these sacrifices, they're symbolic pictures of the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. For the Bible says in the New Testament that he is the once for all sacrifice that puts an end to all of the sacrificial system. And we know that God the Father accepts the sacrifice of Christ because he raised his son from the dead as proof that he accepted what Jesus did. And as a result, Christ's sacrifice is the basis by which you and I are reconciled to God, but not only by which we're reconciled to God, but by which we find favor and acceptance and blessing from God. That because of Christ's work, we can come into His presence boldly and find the help and the support that we need. And I want you to also see in verse 3 that the Apostle Paul gave a New Testament equivalent of this verse in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, friends, this, this verse, verse 3, it begs us as Christians to ask if we're presenting ourselves to God like David did as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices of worship and commitment and surrender to Him. Or are we being conformed and squeezed into the mold 
of the world. You will never know the favor and the blessing and the power of God on your life until you offer yourself in complete surrender and commitment to Him. And notice how verse 3 ends. Selah. Think about that. Think about that. In verse 4, they pray for purpose. May He grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. What, what is David's heart desire? To win the battle. What is David's plans? It's his battle plan. And so they're praying that the king would be so caught up in his life with God that God would bless his desires and bless his plans. It's an echo of Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you're saying this morning, oh, I love that verse. It's a blank check. God promises to give me everything I want in my heart. Friends, do you know what's in your heart? You think that's what God's promising? No, no, no. No, God is saying, listen to how the verse begins. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's that worship. It's that surrender. It's that commitment, that consecration to God. And when you do that and you delight in Him, when you find your joy in Him, when listen, when you find your purpose in Him, He actually changes the desires of your heart and the plans of your heart to be in line with his desires and his plans for your life. So that then you want for your life the same thing that God wants for you. And then God says, I can give you that. See, it's not really about you. Don't you hate that? It's about him and his purpose for your life. And listen, I've been doing what I'm doing for a long time. I'm a satisfied customer. You will never find complete purpose till you find it in him and his plans for you. That's it. Number five. They pray a prayer for prosperity in verse five. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners and may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now notice what happens in verse 5. You got your Bible open? I hope you do. You should have. For the first time, the assembly of the people include themselves along with the king in their prayers. In the first four verses, it was you and your, you and your. They were praying for the king. And now notice what happens in verse 5. You see the language? They use we. They're caught up with the king. And the people anticipated in verse 5, shouting for joy over the king's triumphs in battle. And this phrase, shout for joy, is used in military context. It's a loud shrill, a vibrating shriek of victory. It is not something calm. It is passionate. It is full of excitement. It's like this. Oh, it pains me to use this illustration. If you're a Steelers fan and you get excited about the Steelers and you reach over to the couch and grab your terrible towel and you put it in the air and you start hooping and hollering and waving the towel. Or you could be more refined and root for the Cowboys. 
And in the same way that we cheer on our sports teams, they are so caught up in the name. Do you see the text? Look at verse 5. They are so caught up in the name of the God of Jacob and his character and his power and his faithfulness on behalf of his people that they're going to shout for joy over the victory that the God of Jacob gives David. And they're going to lift their banners. They're going to lift their terrible towels in praise and worship. Why? Oh, don't miss this. This was worth coming to church for. If the king wins, the people receive the joy. And if the king is victorious, the people raise the banner. Because God designed it in such a way that the king and the people were so entwined in their lives that when the king prospered, the people prospered. And when the king failed, the people failed. Oh my goodness. I'm trying to stay calm. Can you not see when you are caught up with the Lord Jesus Christ and he is victorious as your king, you are victorious with him? This is the picture in this psalm. And so they pray. Look at the end. May the Lord fulfill all of our petitions. May the Lord fulfill all that we have prayed in these first five verses on behalf of our king. Did you know that in John 16, 22, when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his imminent death, he said, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And then in Luke 24, verse 52, after his resurrection, Luke records that all of his disciples were filled with joy. Friends, joy is the emotion of salvation. Joy is the emotion that the Lord Jesus Christ brings to his people in his victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And just as the people rejoiced in David's salvation and victory, we sing for joy and rejoice in the salvation and victory of the Lord Jesus Christ because God the Father saved our King. We are caught up with him and we are saved in him. When we turn from our sins and trust in him for our salvation. And like Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. We have an Old Testament example in verse number 5. Of the importance of praying for those whom God has put in charge over us. And so I ask you this morning. Do you pray for God's protection? Do you pray for God's provision? Do you pray for God's power? Do you pray for God's purpose? Do you pray for his prosperity? Do you pray for the leaders of our nation or do you just complain about them? Do you pray for the leaders of our state or do you just complain about them? Do you pray for the leaders of our city? Do you pray for the leaders of your church? Do you pray for the leaders of your home? Like the people of Israel, our lives are so entwined with the leaders that God has put over us. If they prosper, we prosper. If they fail, we fail. Well, we not only see the prayers for the king. Secondly, 
In verses 6 through 8, we see the prayer of the king. Look at the text, and this is where the change in speaker takes place. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Verses 6 through 8 are David's response to the prayers of the people in verses 1 through 5. And notice how David begins in verse 6. He begins with confidence and faith. He says, now I know. And his confidence in verse 6 is in that the Lord saves his anointed. Now look at the language carefully. The Lord saves his anointed. It is prophetic language that speaks of future tense. It means that David is praying and speaking as if the battle has already been won and God has already answered the prayers of the people and the prayers of the king and God has saved him. It means that through prayer, David is convinced that Yahweh will save him and he speaks as if it's already taken place. It's a reminder of what Psalm 28.8 says. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Moreover, in verse 6, David is confident that the Lord will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And when David talks about God's right hand, he's speaking of it as a symbol of power and authority. And in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, after God delivered his people from uh, Pharaoh and his army and slavery in Egypt, the Bible records the song of Moses. And in the first four or five verses of Exodus 15, Moses sings for joy and triumph over God's faithfulness and God wielding his mighty right hand of power. Listen, I'm not making this up. That destroyed Pharaoh's horses and chariots. That's what Moses sang about. And so you'll notice in verse 7 that the language changes once again to the plural. As David not only speaks for himself, but he speaks on behalf of the nation, confessing his and their trust in Yahweh. Uh, David understood that he and the people he represented would never be saved in the day of trouble by their own strength, their own resources, or their wisdom. That only God, the God of Jacob, could save them. He knew that those who depended on chariots and horses were no match for the mighty right hand of God. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. It's foolishness to trust in chariots and horses. Dale Ralph Davis says that the flaunted resources of human power can be very fragile and very flimsy. And the people of God are told not to put their trust there. Oh, friends, David was a mighty warrior. He had skill. And he understood that horses and chariots were flimsy. That they would fail. That only the mighty hand of God could give victory. That's why he declared in Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
Do you see what he's doing here? The emphasis of his response to the prayers of the people is caught up in one word in verse 7. Do you see it? It's the word trust. It means to employ, to ponder, to meditate, to continually remind yourself of the name of God. God, we, your people, we don't trust in chariots and horses. We implore the name of the God of Jacob. We continually remind ourselves of your name, God, of your faithfulness. And David knew what he was talking about, friends. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 17 when Saul and the people of Israel were afraid of Goliath? And David came to check on his brothers and bring a report back to his father. And David went to Saul and said, I'll face the giant. And Saul said, no, David, you can't do that. You're just a little guy. He'll destroy you. And this was David's response to Saul. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What's he saying? I trust him. The God of Jacob is the strength of my life. He's the strength of my soul. And in times of trouble, he will deliver me. And just as he delivered me from the lion, and just as he delivered me from the bear, he'll deliver me from Goliath. And just as he delivered him from Goliath, he would deliver him from this day of trouble. And notice how he ends in verse 8. Because the Lord is both David and the people's trust, he has faith when the dust settles and the battle is over and the victory is won. He will rise and he will stand upright. And all of the enemies who place their trust in chariots and horses will collapse and fail. Friends, there, there's a word here for us. It's the word trust. I mean, what are you trusting in today? If we're honest, some of us are trusting in our retirement accounts. I mean, we're married to those numbers on a daily basis. And if they're up, we're up. And if they're down, we're down. And we're just all over the map. Do you know what David would say about that? It's flimsy. It's fleeting. Some of us are trusting in our good works. We think that if we'll just be a good person and the then the good will outweigh the bad and, and we'll be in good shape and everything will work out all right in the end. It's flimsy. It's fleeting. It'll fail you. Some of us are hiding behind a cloak of religion. We look one way. We act one way on Sundays. And the rest of the week, we are walking hypocrites. And we think that just by coming in a place like this and putting on a good show that God accepts it and we're good and we're right in the eyes of the people and so we're going to be right in his eyes, it's fleeting. It'll fail. If you're trusting in anything other than the name of the God of Jacob, you're trusting in horses and chariots. And in the end, you will fall and be destroyed. Well, we not only see the prayers for the king and the prayer of the king, finally we see the pleading for the king in verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Notice the psalm ends with one final change of speaker. 
the people once again call upon Yahweh to save and protect their team, their king. You know, you know what the picture is? It's as if David is done worshiping at the tabernacle. He's gathered his forces together. He's on his war horse, and he's headed out to battle. And the people are all around him and his troops, and they're saying, Oh, Yahweh, save the king. Somebody much smarter than me in the Hebrew text says that verse 9 should be translated this way. Yahweh save, the king will answer us in the day when we call. Yahweh save summarizes verses 4 and 5. The king will answer us in the day that we call summarizes verses 6 through 8. Except the problem is that the king referred to in verse 9 can't be David. Because they're not calling out to David. They're calling out to God. Yahweh, the true king. And friends, at the end of the psalm and at the end of the day of trouble, we know that Yahweh will be true to his king and that Yahweh will answer his people because as goes the king, so goes the people. For Yahweh's name is tied up with his people and his name is faithfulness and he will never do anything contrary to his name. And so his people will be victorious and prosper. And as this psalm points us to the New Testament, we know that Yahweh has answered his people because he's given us his son. And while Psalm 20 chronicles the life of David, it points beyond David to the son of David. For Jesus is the ultimate anointed king. Jesus is the one who went into battle and won victory on our behalf. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has defeated all of our enemies. And when we trust in him for our salvation, our lives are bound up with him. And our old life is buried with him in his death. And we are raised to a new life in Christ in and through his resurrection. And as a result of Christ's victory, when we come to him and turn from our sins, the Bible says we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ and we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And all of this is because Christ has won the victory for us. So listen to your pastor. As Richard Baxter, the old Puritan pastor, used to say, Preachers, every time you get in the pulpit, you are preaching as a dying man to dying men. So would you listen to this dying man preach Christ to you who are in the process of dying? That your only help, your only support, your only hope in this life and in the life to come is Jesus Christ. And Psalm 20 is all about him. We need this psalm because like David, we live in days of trouble. And this psalm teaches us the priority and the place of prayer in the midst of trouble. It challenges our faulty, flimsy objects of trust and security. And it points us to the high king of heaven who reigns in complete victory. And because, friends, because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, our victory is guaranteed. So may we raise our banner high as we sing and shout for joy. Our king has won. And this is the song he has given us for our days of trouble. We are victorious in Christ. Let's pray.